You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. This episode includes graphic details of a crime and mention of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. And if anything you've heard this season has been triggering for you, I encourage you to talk it out with a loved one or maybe even speak with a mental health professional. I know so many of you listening are on difficult healing journeys, and I hope you know that you are not alone. Are you a Star Wars fan? Do you watch Star Wars at all? Yes, no? I'm aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up on it. There's this scene where Obi-Wan and Anakin, young Anakin, they're talking in, I guess, like the living room, and all of a sudden they sense that there are like killer snakes or something in Padme's room. And they're like, I feel it too. And they run in and they sense these killer snakes somehow through the force. But the whole time you got Senator Palpatine, who's the friggin' emperor. And they don't sense that. They don't know that. And I was talking to dad because, because he's a giant like science nerd. That's where I get it or science fiction nerd, all of it. And I was like, I feel like that was this, like we, we Holy ghost and spirit of, um, you know, interpretation and, you know, prophecy and all of these things. But this whole time, David was sitting in the midst planning this thing and nobody discerned it with their spirit of discernment. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode 7, The Big Ol' Ship. And on the final episode of this season... Sharon and I unpack the verdict and sentencing in the David Terry murder and arson trial. And what really happened at Emmanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal back in June of 1987? And where is this left, this assembly of churches today? What does the future look like for Emmanuel? First up, we're going to take it back to late September 1988, when a Tennessee jury finds David Terry Nashville pastor and associate bishop overseer, guilty of first-degree murder and arson. And if you remember back to episode four, we covered his trial. We learned that prior to the crime, he had worked as a butcher and that he used those skills to mutilate the body of church handyman James Matheny. And now, facing the death penalty, here's what David had to say in his own defense when he finally took to the stands at his own sentencing hearing. I just reached a point in my life that I didn't want to live, Terry testified. I don't know if it was burnout or middle-aged crazies, as they call it. I just couldn't cope with life. I wanted to die. Sharon's going over court documents from David Terry's sentencing hearing for the very first time. Sometime in the spring of 1987, Terry said, I put a gun to my own head, but was unable to pull the trigger. I felt like a complete failure. The church wasn't growing and I felt that it was my fault. I had gained so much weight, I had such a low concept of myself. And backing up his story his defense team had told during trial, David testifies that he had been suffering from a massive depression for years, specifically since his mother died in 1983. But it wasn't until the spring of 87 that he says a crushing announcement from Emmanuel's bishop overseer at the time Rob Roy Banks, sent him over the edge. The announcement was that not only was he delaying his retirement, but contrary to David's hopes, he was naming his son, Ronnie Banks, 
as successor. But I heard a statement just just the other day, and it said that uh, when you are when you are birthed in the fire, you're not going to get used to smoke. All right. And that's what happened. Through the 90s, Ronnie Banks gradually took over the assembly from his dad. And as of 2022, he is still bishop overseer today. You let that coal ignite in that kin and that wood, man. That smoke lifts and that fire begins to come I think it's time we get birthed in the fire. Now, I want to bring back David's attorney, Michael Terry, again, no relation, not only for more on the David Terry trial outcome for this final episode, but also for more insight into what David Terry was like as a man. His hope for success in this world was was tied to religion. He had a history of different types of jobs before he became a minister. And the minister thing allowed him to be a professional type, a white collar guy, a a leader of a group and in a, in a uh, organization with a, with upward mobility. And um, when he wasn't able, when he hit a ceiling and wasn't able to move any higher, that was a factor in, in his, uh, depressive behavior. And it was in this pit of despair that David Terry says he hatched a plan. A plan that originally never involved him killing his new friend, James Matheny. Pentecostal preacher John David Terry said yesterday he planned to fake his own drowning, somehow using church handyman James Matheny as a witness when he left his home on June 15, 1987. This is, we talked about this before, but it was about um, how David Terry had found information on how to fake his own death or start a new Oh my goodness, you found it? I found it. The ad for How to Get Lost and Start All Over Again by Gary B. Clark from Soldiers of Fortune magazine. On the stand, David Terry says that this is the exact ad that he read and responded to. This book is for all people who are so troubled by financial problems that the only solution seems to be to get lost from it all. The first half of this book deals with the financial problems that might make a person want to get lost. The other half provides information on how to get lost. In today's plastic world, it is easy to get in over your head. If this happens to you, you will need to know how to get lost and start all over again. How is this ethical? How did somebody place this ad? How, how is that ethical? David told the court that he mail-ordered this book and then used the information inside as a guide as he prepared to disappear. Terry testified that he tried to obtain birth certificates and an identification in the name of a deceased childhood friend. When that failed, he went to the library and reviewed old newspaper stories seeking an identity. Wow. And the identity he landed on? Jerry Millam. Jerry was a boy who had died in a drowning back in 1951. And in the weeks leading up to the fire, David had successfully used his name and information to get a new driver's license 
social security number, a fake mailing address. This is also when he purchased that motorcycle that we've heard about. And the life insurance. All of it. So what went wrong? Why didn't David Terry fake his own death and leave James Matheny as a living witness? Go to tequila by screaming voices. What? Yeah, have you? Yeah, yeah, he's gonna be. Goaded by screaming voices in his head, Terry said that when he saw James Matheny standing in the church that morning, that something snapped. Terry testified he reached for a pistol he had considered using to kill himself, and he shot Matheny in the head. None of this lines up with exactly what they found. This is. As my Aunt Tammy would say, this is a black lie. Okay. So he was standing there looking out the window, and I went over and I shot him, Terry said, sobbing. I thought it was David Terry I was killing, Terry told a circuit court jury, which must decide whether to sentence him on life imprisonment or death by electrocution. All I could see was David Terry. According to courtroom reporters, people could be heard crying in the gallery as David's testimony continued. Terry, who worked for several years as a meat cutter, said he cut off Matheny's right forearm when he noticed a tattoo there. It was David Terry's face, but it was not my body, said David Terry, 44. Okay, come on. It was only then that Terry said that he conceived a plan to sever, ugh, sever Matheny's head, slice off tattoos. Well, then if it was David Terry's face, why'd he have to cut off his head? I mean, this is not logical. He says he flushed the pieces of skin down the toilet and put the head and forearm in a canvas bag to take with him. And he also took off his own belt and put it on Matheny's waist. Do you know about the belt with the T on it? Yes. The T was for Terry. His wife, Brenda, had once given it to him as a Father's Day present. Um, he had a belt with a T on it that she had given him. And he put that on James Matheny yeah. to make it look like, uh, could you imagine a gift that you gave is used to, uh-uh, mm-mm, mm-mm. The minister said he also wrapped Matheny's body in a piece of green indoor-outdoor carpet, which the church used in its manger scenes. Oh, my God. At Christmas. <laughs> Oh, my God. The church used it in its manger scenes at Christmas. Uh, Hold on a second. I'm still shook. Okay. One of the points about all of this that Sharon keeps coming back to is about how insidious it all was. Whether or not David Terry's original intention was to murder James Matheny or let him serve as some kind of witness to his fake death. This was predatory. David hired him and groomed him. He befriended him. Well, you know what, though? That only goes to show how good David was in his role as a pastor, that it was just unfathomable that, oh, hey, the two of them were together. Now James Matheny is dead and the pastor's missing. Well, I guess the pastor killed him. Like that that line of thought could not even begin to process with them because David had positioned himself as such a great spiritual leader. So of course it's a cult. The cult makes more sense than David doing it. 
We already ruled out cult activity being a factor in this case episodes ago. But Sharon makes a really good point here. It was easier for some members of Emmanuel to believe that this somehow had something to do with a cult than it was for them to believe that their spiritual leader could have somehow been responsible. But either way, what happened here was dark and evil. Terry said he poured gasoline and diesel fuel throughout the church, but failed in his first attempt to light a blaze. Realizing he had no matches, he went to a nearby convenience store and bought a lighter. He said he was numb as he rode away from the flaming church at about midnight. According to his gruesome testimony, after riding his new motorcycle away from the burning church into the night, David rode around for a while, looking for somewhere to dump the body parts in the canvas bag. Eventually, he decided on Lake Barkley, northeast of Nashville, where he says he rented a boat at the marina, went out in it, and dropped James Matheny's head and arm into the water. I knew that it was in the water, but I, didn't, I don't know if I knew it was in the lake. After returning the boat, David drove to Memphis and paid cash for a two-night hotel stay. And I don't know that I knew Memphis. And while in Memphis, he went to a baseball game. He went to a double-A baseball game. And baseball was not something he'd been interested in before. It was all part of this new life, this new persona he was building. A guy with a shaved head and groomed eyebrows. A guy with a tan who wears khakis. A guy who goes to baseball games. But the following day, whatever the jig was, it was up. News broke that Nashville investigators had determined that it was, in fact, James Matheny's body found inside the burning church, not David Terry's. However he was involved, everyone knew he could still be alive, and they were looking for him now. He called his lawyers and returned to Nashville. But before he started east again, Terry said he drove west to the Mississippi River and tossed in the 38 caliber pistol he had used in killing Matheny. Now, on the stand, David Terry admitted to a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. But he also denied a lot of the prosecution's story as well, especially this idea that he had committed this horrific crime in order to run away with another woman. There's never been another woman in my life other than my wife for the last 16 years, Terry said. Wow. Terry said he decided to return to Nashville because I didn't have nowhere to go. Everything that I loved and wanted was in Nashville. What? Did, what, what, what? Okay. As well, David's sentencing hearing testimony in an extra attempt at leniency also included more information about not only his own mental illness, but the mental illness that ran in his family. And the fact that both his parents had histories that were consistent with the diagnosis that he got, so major or even manic depression. Specifically, though, was this story that David shared on the stand about his dad, John C. Terry. 
former bishop overseer, John C. Terry. Oh, this is about his daddy. You'll remember he took over Emmanuel after Nina's death in 1975, and he was overseer until 1980 when he stepped down to care for his wife, David's mom. And the story that David told on the stand about his dad was about an event that was well-documented in local papers, about how his dad tried to pull this ridiculous scam back in 1948. David would have been four at the time. He said there was some history of hoaxes in his family. He said his father, John C. Terry, who formerly served as the bishop overseer of the 35 Church, Emmanuel Church of Christ organization, falsely reported a robbery when he found out he had overextended people's credit while a salesman for the Jewel Tea Company in the late 1940s. I showed Sharon the newspaper coverage of this hoax. It played out in the papers over the course of a couple days in July of 1948. John C. Terry, Nashville coffee salesman, beaten Friday by two men who kidnapped and robbed him and then tied him to a tree to die, is shown as he was taken to a Memphis hospital Friday. There he is. That's a gross photo. Isn't it disgusting? That's just, is he in his bed? Where is he? This photo shows him propping himself up in a hospital bed, sort of partially covered by a white sheet. He looks dirty. And there's just, I don't know, something sort of intimate and gross about it. Ew! 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 Who took that photo and said, let's put this in the paper for all to see? Deputies say they found him gagged and tied to a tree about 100 yards off the highway, and that there were knife wounds on his chest and his arms. He told them that he'd been making a delivery when he pulled over to help what looked like two men in need. He said one of them was lying down on the ground, like he was sick. When he bent over to look at him, the large man struck him from behind. He came to in the truck, which the men had taken and were driving, and was slashed when he refused to tell where his money pouch was, he said. He was robbed of about $80 anyway. Terry said the large man called the small man hot shot. Hot shot. Which is funny because we know it was completely made up, so he really went for detail. Oh my gosh. Terry said the large man called the small man hotshot. He described the smaller one as weighing about 130 pounds. The large man, Terry said, was about 35 and weighed about 200 pounds and had blonde hair. FBI agents and deputies are investigating the incident. But just like his son's elaborate hoax would quickly fall apart nearly 40 decades later, back in 48, so did John C. Terry's. Oh my God. Uh, Start with the headline. Salesman confesses kidnap torture hoax. A traveling salesman yesterday confessed to FBI agents that his story of being kidnapped, robbed, and tied to a tree off a highway near here was a hoax. That is, I cannot. I can't process that. Why would you? The sheriff says that John C. Terry told them he had pulled this stunt in order to convince his wife, Pauline Terry, that this job was dangerous and that he should resign, despite her objections. But then later, he told the sheriff it was all just a plot to steal money from the coffee company he was driving for at the time. Whatever his motivation, though, the truth was out. He admitted that he had wired himself to that tree after slashing himself with a razor blade 
to, as the papers put it, simulate torture injuries. No so, charges, though. They didn't charge him. They just let him go. No charges will be placed against Terry. That's crazy. He confessed to the FBI yesterday it was all a hoax. Ooh. I, he made everybody that up. I don't know how he became a pastor after that. Like, who hires this person? Yeah, it's hard. It, the, the big question with him is like, since he, this happened, how did he end up becoming such a prominent leader in Emmanuel? Like, I mean, did Nina not know what was going on? Not a prominent, the prominent. He was the bishop. Yeah. On that, I do want to note that, yes, despite this massive mark on his character and whether or not Nina knew about it, somehow John C. Terry continues his rise to the very top of the Emmanuel Assembly. I don't know, maybe Nina loved a good old-fashioned story of Christian redemption, or maybe I'm making a bigger deal out of it than it was at the time, I don't know. But no matter any of it, John C. Terry slowly works his way up in this organization. He first joined in his early 20s. He'd serve as a deacon in Smithville. He sat on the Emmanuel Board of Elders for years before and after his hoax. He was assistant secretary of missions, assistant general secretary. And once his son David was old enough and a pastor himself, they worked together to plant, lead, and grow individual Emmanuel churches. Approximately 4,000 persons, Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, and Illinois, are attending the Emmanuel Churches of Christ General Assembly. And David and his dad pastored wherever Nina sent them, to places like McKinville, Columbia, Orlando, and eventually, of course, Nina called them both back to Nashville. Other speakers yesterday afternoon and last night include Elder Emmett J. Allen, Tullahoma, Tennessee Elder J.C. Braswell, Smithville, Elder Luther McBride, Carthage, and Elder J.C. Terry, Nashville, Tennessee. David Terry was sentenced on September 25th, 1988. With Bible in hand, John David Terry enters the courtroom to hear his sentence. And from day one of the trial through to sentencing, the whole thing lasted just over a week. A week where Michael Terry and his co-counsel fought for David's life. In this part of the world, people don't have a problem with the death penalty and generally. And if you do have a problem with it, you cannot serve on the jury. So the only people on the jury are people who support the death penalty. And if you support the death penalty and you're looking at a crime like this, this is where you'd apply it. As his counsel, like, what were your biggest challenges in defending David Terry? The facts of this case were horrible. They were horrible. David Terry would never have done this again. He would never have been this kind of threat and he had not been this kind of threat in his prior life so executing him was never necessary or never 
never made sense. But because of the facts of the case, because of the, the fact he cut somebody's head off, the fact that he stole money from a church, the fact that he was a minister, the fact that he cut off tattoos, we did not overcome those facts. As, as much as we tried, we didn't overcome those facts. Terry to death by electrocution. A circuit court jury sentenced Pentecostal preacher John David Terry yesterday to death by electrocution. Okay. Terry was sentenced to the electric chair for the 1987 death of James Chester Matheny, 32. As there would be with most trials, when a sentencing is announced, there was mixed reactions from people present in the courtroom. James Matheny's ex-wife, Teresa Seagraves, was there. During the trial, she had testified against David, describing him as not only her pastor, but a family friend who had betrayed her beyond comprehension. And before the sentencing, she told the press that she'd left his punishment in God's hands. Also in the courtroom that day, David's wife, Brenda. His wife, Brenda Terry, wept quietly on the front row of the courtroom. Can you imagine the man that he was and that everyone knew? And then he comes back, looks different, and won't talk about anything. Like, how horrifying that would be? How scary that would be? Like, someone you thought you knew, and all of a sudden they're not? That That is scary. But I think scarier than that is realizing the amount of time that he spent planning it and the whole time you were living with him, the whole time you were trusting him. It makes me so sad for Brenda. Back in 87, after the fire, when so many in Emmanuel left, Brenda leaned in. And although she did attend another church for a few years, she eventually came back to Emmanuel again, where she continues to worship the Lord to this day. Former pastor on death row found hanged in bathroom. In 2003, David Terry committed suicide in a Tennessee prison. A former pastor took his own life yesterday, according to the Department of Correction, while he was on death row for killing a handyman in 1987 and burning down his church in a plot to steal thousands of dollars from his congregation. Terry, 58, was found at 7.11 a.m. near a data entry work area where he worked as an inmate custodian, the release said. He was pronounced dead at 8.16. 
after he was taken to Nashville General Hospital at Meharry. So of course it would never come to the, you know, the death penalty because he committed suicide while in prison. Were you still his lawyer at the time? Do you have memories of finding out he was dead? Yes, I I was his lawyer. And my memory is that uh, my co-counsel called me and said, have you seen the newspaper? If given the opportunity, we would, not that we knew he was gonna do it or that he was planning and told us or anything like that, but, he he was a depressed man, and this um, the, this this had gone on from '87 to 2003. That was his life, uh, was his case, and and trying to save his life. Uh, and so, uh, at that point, I think he saw that his legal options were running out. And, um, and, and he took his own life. And I think from the, the, the day he turned around on that bridge until the day he hung himself, he was remorseful, remorseful, remorseful. He hated what he had done. During the more than 15 years David spent in prison, he was described as a model prisoner. He counseled fellow inmates, held Bible studies, and regularly attended worship services. But nothing can bring back the life he stole. Nothing can take away the pain from the people he harmed so deeply. So do you remember when he died? I do remember when he died. Uh, I was an adult. I mean, I was a married adult at this time. Um, So this was 2003. I remember getting dressed to go to the visitation. They had the visitation in Shelbyville. And I remember we rode with my parents and I felt like my sister was with us too. And I just couldn't get out of the car. So my husband and I, we sat in the car during the whole thing. I think I made a bargain with my sister that I'd watch her kids. And we, we sat in the car, kept the car running. And because we were in the parking lot, we would see people like walking from their car. And, and it was like a who's who of a manual hierarchy. So I was seeing people that I had not seen in years. I mean, years. And so I was like, oh, my God, look, there's such and such. Oh, look, there's so and so. And they just, you know, walk on up there. They were all paying their respects somehow. Didn't go in. I couldn't go in. I wonder what they said. What do, what do you say? 
I want to mention again how satisfying it's been for me this season to know that all of this has provided Sharon with the chance to start talking about what happened with her parents. And not just about David Terry, but about belief, spiritual beliefs, and how she was raised. I point blank asked my daddy, I said, when I was coming up, when I was, when I was a child, did you believe that you had to be baptized in Jesus' name to be saved? Like that was the only way to do it, the only way to be saved. And he said, yes. And I said, do you still believe that? And he said, no. Like he just flat out said no. And I was just, I could, you, you could have knocked me over with a feather. And, and he and mama were both talking about how, you know, they believed. And mama said we were brainwashed. I was like, I know we were brainwashed. And then daddy said, but we were never like that at home. And I said, I will agree with that. Like at home, even though he was pastor, we, did, we weren't churchy at home. We didn't have like prayer circles. We didn't really talk church stuff at home. But what I wish they would have done even prior to when he was pastor is I wish the conversations that they had between themselves, because I even used the word deconstruct with them. I said, how did, how did y'all do that? How did, did you just one day turn to her and go, you know, I just don't think you have to be baptized in Jesus' name. What do you think? Like, how did that conversation go between the two of you? And they, they both said that they never really talked about it. They just kind of went through this together. And, and I said, I wish that, because even though y'all didn't push this on us, does not mean it was not pushed on me. Because I went, I had Sunday school teachers. I went to church camp. Like all of these things, the way that you were brainwashed, I was brainwashed, except I didn't have an adult mind to negotiate it the way that y'all were negotiating it with each other. How hard is it to drive away and be like, so, you know, there were some good parts about today's service, but ooh, I don't know what I think about that. Do you, you know what you think about that thing right there? And I just, I don't know why they didn't. Holly, we were born into bondage, but praise God because of the promise. They may not have talked about any of this back then, but they're talking about it now, especially Sharon and her dad. Good to see everybody out in the house of the Lord. We just want to turn loose tonight and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen. Praise God, praise God for His goodness and His mercy. They have long chats about how different Emmanuel was before compared to today how now there's not a single woman in executive leadership. They also talk about who might become the next bishop overseer of Emmanuel Church of Christ after Ronnie Banks steps down or passes away. And whoever that is, he or she will be the fifth overseer in Emmanuel history. And of course, Nina was the very first. Pierce, Elder Nina May, Friday afternoon, February 14th, 1975. This is her obituary. Survived by husband, Charlie B. Pierce, sister, Mrs. Vera Beatty, Springfield, Tennessee, a number of nieces and nephews. Remains rest at the Emanuel Church of Christ, 522 Woodland Street, where funeral services will be conducted Monday afternoon. Board of Elders of the Emmanuel Churches of Christ will officiate. 
ministers of the Emmanuel Churches of Christ, and friends will serve as pallbearers. Internment, Spring Hill Cemetery. So, after all this looking into Nina's life and Emmanuel Church of Christ and its history, a question I still have for Sharon is, where is Emmanuel today? Where is it headed? You can put this on the record. I feel like Emmanuel is going to dry up and die because they don't know what a strategic plan or succession planning is. Leading institutions and 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 being a manager and writing strategic plans of my own, I'm just like, oh, that's really bad managing. Bless your heart. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> that's, that's kind of my feelings about it. I wonder if the women were still in charge in upper leadership. Oh! <laughs> Maybe it would have wound up different. You know? You never know. <laughs> Your battery's running though. You need to go plug up. Okay. At this point, I've interviewed Sharon over 10 times. Her down there in Nashville, me up here in Vancouver. And even after this season is done, I know we will be friends forever. But I do have just one more matter of business to attend to. Just one more document that I want Sharon to see. The assembly has been blessed and that God has given us the necessary buildings and land for about 30 of these congregations. It's a passage out of that chunky 1982 Emmanuel history book, a passage about their hopes for the future of the church. And this would have been about five years before the fire, when the assembly was thriving and the future was bright. May our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, help us all to stand, to love, and to serve. And should you see fit to tarry, may our children and their children be privileged to look back upon us and be able to thank God that we have given them the truth in all caps, (laughs) as God gave it to us in the beginning, exclamation point. Oh my gosh. This is very much the type of of preaching the type of um, just culture that I grew up in, that we have the truth. And we are the ones, you know, who will go to heaven. It's, it's terrible. So today, what do you teach your children about God and spirituality? What I teach our kids is well, that's what some people believe. When they were little and they would, you know, still go to Sunday school with my mother-in-law or my parents, because, you know, they would spend it on Saturday night and go to Sunday school. And then they would 
come and say something about, you know, bad people going to hell, I'd be like, well, that's what some people believe. What do you, what do you believe? You get to choose what you believe. So that's, that's what I teach them. They get to choose what they believe. I never was allowed that because I mean, it was the, the opposite of that. We had the truth and everybody else was wrong. Wow. That's hitting me up in a weird place right now, because there is no way I would allow my children to believe in Christianity because I don't believe it's real. I don't, I don't believe, I believe it's mythology and legend and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I would not let them go to church. This was when they were, this is when I'm talking about that time, it was, I was just barely, we were getting out of it. Like we had just started to get out of it, but my parents and Brock's mom were like, well, what about the babies? They need, you know? And so, and I was like, Sunday school, they're not even paying attention and in the service and Sunday school is cookies. So like, um, I didn't think there was anything. And of course we enjoyed our Saturday nights. Right. So like the kids would go stay with the grandparents while we would like have a good time hanging out and doing whatever the hell we wanted to on Saturday night. Cause I was a stay home mom at the time, you know, they were little. And so that's, that's kind of during that time. Like Josiah was four and Esther was two, you know, we were just getting out of it. Sharon's been out of the church solid now for just over 10 years, so completely out before her mid-30s. Today, studies show that around 64% of young adults in America who were brought up in the church no longer have any involvement with church life whatsoever. 64%. But despite young people leaving in droves, churches like Emmanuel are left to wonder why And yeah, try and problem solve, but they carry on. Today, Emmanuel's 14 official churches are a mishmash of new and old congregants, including some of what they call the faithful few. The faithful few who stuck around, even after the fire. We laugh about it now, uh, because when any, any reference to a faithful few, we start singing this song that Bishop Banks sings, and oh, he gets so excited singing it. It says, she's a big old ship, but she's sitting mighty low in the water. It's so funny. And he talks about, it's this, like the sinking ship. It's this whole song about the sinking ship. She's a big old ship, and she's sitting mighty low in the water. She's been on that maiden voyage. Ever since the day the blood of Calvary bought her. I don't know if it's Calvary or Jesus. Both of them are rhythmically. Anyway, um, she's something. It had been a while, so Sharon had to Google the rest of the lyrics. This is, okay. It's so victim blaming. Um, Some passengers jumped overboard and drowned. Whoa. Right? So, so it says, uh, she's a big old ship, and she's sitting mighty low in the water. She's been on her maiden voyage ever since the blood of Calvary bought her. She's weathered violent storms. Some passengers jumped overboard and drowned. But she's not just some Titanic. She's the church. 
and she ain't going down or something like that. And, and every time Bishop Banks says, she's the church, like he does his fist like this. And everybody just says, yay, hallelujah. Big old ship. <laughs> in my in the water. Bless her, Lord. <laughs> I am so thankful that I had the opportunity to learn about such an interesting church this season. A church that, to me, in the end, you know, I think it was clearly built and fostered by a lot of really good people. Good people who truly believe in the love of their God and the powerful work that he can do in your life. But they are also a people who, more than 30 years later, are still healing from the aftermath of what happened at Emmanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal back on that morning of June 16, 1987. Since that day, what was left of the structure was left abandoned. And over the years, there were several more fires on the property after homeless squatters took it over. Today, 522 Woodland Street in Nashville, Tennessee, once a jewel amongst all Nashville churches, is a parking lot. Thank you so much to everyone who's joined me this season. Professor David Reed, Professor Scott Poole, Don Cusick, Ashawn Crawley, and Michael Terry. An extra special thank you, of course, to Sharon. You became a friend during this journey together, and I can't wait to come and see you in Tennessee. A huge shout out to the Tennessean. Without the incredible archive of old newspapers, I could have never told Emmanuel and Nina's story in the way that I did. And absolutely a huge thank you to my incredible team at the Frequency Podcast Network, Stephanie Phillips, Braden Alexander, Diana Key, Mary Jubrin, and Jordan Heath-Rawlings. As always... I'm Tara Jean Stevens, your host and creator of Heaven Bent. To connect with me and to see photos and videos related to this and other seasons, find Heaven Bent Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Tonight is worth it all to be with Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to season three, and trust that I'm already working on season four for you. Stand by. You know, if you don't have Jesus Christ in your life tonight, we're just a ship adrift on an ocean subject to every wave of life that comes our way. But praise God, when you get Jesus in the ship, you don't have to direct. Amen. Praise God. Because I've got Jesus in the ship. Amen.